What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and we have two stories for you this week. The first is on the validity of a lawsuit filed by environmental nonprofits against a number of German automakers. Then we discuss China's ambitious targets for peak carbon emissions in 2030 and carbon neutrality in 2060. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Cars are one of the darlings of decarbonization. It is still a high emitting sector, but it also already has the necessary technology in place to strongly lower its carbon emissions. Cars also represent one of the major consumer choices that can be made to help combat climate change buy an electric car, and take some of the climate anxiety out of your commute. For a variety of reasons we're not going to get into in this episode, most auto companies have already unveiled their plans to drastically lower their fleet emissions in the coming decade. Volkswagen is one of those companies. The German auto manufacturer has tried to rehab its tarnished image due to its diesel dupe scandal by investing more than 41 billion US dollars in developing electric cars. But a threat of legal action by Greenpeace and Deutsche Umwelthilfe, I'm going to pronounce that as duh, that's their acronym and they are a non-profit with environmental and consumer protection concerns in Germany. They called the ambitions of VW and other German rivals such as Daimler and BMW into question. And they've done that by suing all these companies. What they say is that these companies have failed to decarbonize their fleets fast enough to be in line with the Paris Agreement. VW and others have responded by saying they're going as fast as possible and further acceleration is literally impossible. Now, I have a deep love for environmental nonprofits, but like any advocacy group, they have an agenda. So what I want to know is whether these claims by Greenpeace and Duh are valid or not. So I called up Yu Ishiara, who is a colleague of mine who covers the auto industry for us, and asked him to give us a quick take on whether the suits have any validity. I think, you know, the environmentalists, their case definitely has a bit of a base. The issue is that that the problem that the automakers face is just a little bit more complex than that. So to simply just call out Volkswagen as, or its rivals as slow in terms of its environmental reform, you know, I actually think might be a little bit unfair, um, certainly from an industry standpoint, since Volkswagen could actually be perceived to be one of the standard bearers, at least in terms of transitioning their product portfolio from combustion engine towards electric vehicles. Um, they have a pretty robust strategy. Um, they have a lot of targets out there. I think 70% of vehicles in Europe to be battery electric by 20, I think it was 2033 or 2035. And, you know, subsequent markets as well, US, China. Um, but some of their sub brands like Audi, um, I think they have a pledge to be all electric by 2026. Um, and again, they've committed a substantial amount of money, um, something north of 30 billion US dollars to build out 240 gigawatts worth of battery capacity for the group's coming EV fleet. So in terms of the sheer targets that they've announced, they're certainly aggressive, at least compared to some of their peers. By the way, 2030 is the right answer there. The goal is for 70% of new VW cars in Europe to be fully electric by 2030. So they will probably stop making internal combustion engine vehicles for the European market entirely by around 2033 or 2035. That's what you was referencing there. And if it's not already obvious by VW being a German auto manufacturer, a majority of their revenue comes from the EU. So when they say 
they want to change how they sell cars in the EU. They're basically saying they want to change how they sell cars. But the question here, the question that these nonprofits are rising is a question of time. And I think that's important because often in our research and on this podcast, we talk about the need for companies to have already begun the work to decarbonize their systems and operations if they want to hit any reduction targets that the world is putting forth. And with the auto sector, the big difference here is that consumers view buying a car as a personal choice. The marketing that companies use is directly tied to our sense of self. So they have this kind of added barrier there. So what I wanted to hear from you was what he thought about these time constraints. Maybe not whether or not the claims are valid in Greenpeace, but how are these companies doing in terms of preparing themselves for a decarbonized future? Yeah, so, I mean, to take a step back, right, um, so MSCI has done some research that's shown that on average around 78% of total emissions released by these car companies um, come from the actual vehicles themselves. And so when, it, when we talk about environmental reform at a car maker, it obviously comes down to electrification of these fleets. Um, and then you start to think about a normal car, um, whether it's based on internal combustion or even an electric vehicle, normally the process going from design to production to actually hitting a dealer's lot to, you know, having myself to go out and buy it, you know, it takes a couple years to, you know, even with increasing platforming and modularization. So bear that in mind, you know, the, for an internal combustion engine, the supply chain is already built out. But for EVs, for example, um, Volkswagen or any of their rivals would not only need to go out and redesign the cars, which they're doing now, but they have to retool their factories, secure the minerals, and build out the battery capacity, which I mentioned before. Um, and then we get to the point of you know, heavy investment, current cost of batteries. So even if you could accelerate all this, um, you know, you, you, the companies face this issue of you know, making enough money on these cars quick, as quickly as possible um, to keep the company sort of going. Um, you know, again, this might be of less of a concern to the environmental activists campaigning against them, but you know, the auto chain supply chain is a significant source of jobs in countries like Germany. And so, if we start talking about reducing profitability, whether it's because we're aggressively launching EVs or because we're just not launching as many, you know, internal combustion engine cars, this will obviously impact the supply chain. You know, this could obviously impact employment, and not to mention dampen you know company cash flows, which will be the seeds for future investment in electrification. You know, and this is all before we even start talking about things that you mentioned before, like charging infrastructure and consumer taste and affordability and whether they want these things or not. The big question, too, is batteries. Greenpeace and Duh might be right or wrong, but in order for any company to create a zero carbon electric fleet, they need a lot of batteries. And it was just announced that Toyota would spend around $9 billion U.S. over the next decade to build factories for electric car batteries. And is that what is needed by all auto companies, their own battery factories alongside their car manufacturing facilities? There's certainly you know, companies out there which specialize in, you know, electric vehicle batteries today outside of the automakers. Um, the big ones, obviously, are CATL in China. You know, we have a couple Korean up companies. Um, so Toyota have announced, I think, a total of a 14 billion US dollar investment towards their EV battery effort. Uh, 5 billion of that is R&D, and then the 9 billion is what you mentioned before, is for capacity expansion to build out battery factories. This is not unique to Toyota. Volkswagen, um, GM, Ford have made similar sorts of commitments. And you know, it's like you mentioned before, right? To see, to electrify their fleets, these companies need to go out there and secure battery supply. And that is going to be, you know, the single most critical factor to making sure that any of these companies hits their, electri- hits their electrification targets. 
Um, and so even Toyota's $9 billion you know, uh, spent on global battery capacity, um, I think the claim is, is that by 2030, this will deliver them around 200 gigawatts worth of, of battery capacity. And you can just do a little bit of quick mental math here. Um, if you assume an average EV has around 50 kilowatt hour battery, you can use whatever number you want. I just chose 50. You know, if, it, if it's 50, um, that's equ- their 200 uh, gigawatt hours is equivalent to 4 million EVs annually you know, compared to roughly 10 million cars that Toyota sells per year. And then Toyota says that separately on their targets by 2030, that they will have 8 million electrified vehicles, which includes hybrids, and which obviously have much smaller batteries. And so that 9 billion investment will probably be enough to cover Toyota's EV. But again, some of their alliance partners like Subaru, Mazda, or Suzuki, which again, will do not have the capacity to make this kind of investment. But, you know, they will share and they will have to deliver. But the point I wanted to make was that it's a huge amount of money, but you know, it's still not enough to electrify every single Toyota out there. A fair point, and we are just going to have to watch to see how the suit plays out, because it came right after and referenced a landmark Karls Rule Constitutional Court ruling that was done in April of 2021 in Germany, where the judge ruled that future generations have a fundamental right to climate protection and could take action against large companies to secure that right. And so this might be one case of many that investors need to watch as the world continues to limp toward a decarbonized future. If you look at the Union of Concerned Scientists' Earth Systems data on carbon emissions, you see that there's China at the top at 28% of global emissions, the U.S. second at 15%, India and Russia around 6 and 7%, and then everyone else is at about 1%. So how China and the U.S. move, so too go a large part of the world's carbon emissions. In November 2020, China set one of the more ambitious targets aiming to reach a peak in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and become carbon neutral by 2060. This became known as the 3060 plan and it's still in development but my colleague Si Yao He and Siping Yao finally got enough data on what needed to be done to write a report on China's target and how it's going to affect the industry. But first before we go into their interview we need to get some key figures down from the report to set the stage. So at the moment if this regulation works China's national emissions is estimated to peak at 28.5 billion tons in 2030. So there is room for nationwide emissions to continue to increase by an estimated 2.4% annually from today to 2030, but nothing more. To achieve this, the most carbon-intensive sectors, which are materials, utilities, industrials, and of course the energy sector, will bear the highest regulatory pressure to cut emissions. By the way, materials is the sector that consists of construction, metals and mining, paper and forestry, stuff like that. And the industrial sector consists of transportation, machinery, aerospace and defense and others. So to talk about China's 2030 plan, I called up Xiao and what I first wanted to understand from her was whether this was actually an ambitious goal. One that would impact companies and change everything for capital holders. That's actually very interesting because it's the first time China adopted a concept like peak emission and carbon neutrality, also known as net zero. So I would say it's a very important progress because the emission data are no longer hide behind the economic data like GDP or revenue. The government are not only set targets for emission intensity, but also add constraints to total emission. And that need to become the net zero by 2060. Also, as 
as I said before, is like a really huge commitment, and that will influence across different industries. Look, there's no way to know if China can achieve its goal. I could speculate, but I cannot speculate. But when there is data on whether the world's largest emitter can meet a climate goal, you got to sort of speculate using legally approved scenario tools, which we got. And here is what Xiao and her co-author Sipingyao found when they looked at a representative group of companies in China. They found that if the companies kept going as they are now, they would annually emit 1.3 billion tons of CO2 more than what China has budgeted for its 2030 peak. And it's those sectors I mentioned before that are the problems, the materials, industrials, energy, and utility sector. Uh, and they also have to carry most of the water when it comes to decarbonization because they represent 90% of the emissions gap in China. At a company level, it's one of China's biggest cement producers, Anhu Kant Cement, that was identified as the biggest contributor to the emissions gap, and two of China's largest independent power producers, Huanyang Power International and Huadian Power International, followed closely behind, mostly due to their coal-intensive operations. You might be thinking, well, cement, for example. This is one of the basic building blocks of our societies. It's a material whose molecular structure is not so easily substituted for another cleaner version. So how are we going to fix this quickly? And you would be right. Yet these companies have a trick up their sleeve. They are developing patents that will hopefully lead to breakthroughs in low-carbon materials that can be used widely. We found it is exactly those sectors with highest. Emission pressure have the highest potential. If we look at the cooling potential from MSI data, and that part is what we use the green revenue and their potential patent to calculate the future green revenue by 2030. Future green revenue—it's an odd term of art, but what it is is an estimation of a company's potential sales. From the development—that's where the patents come in—and use of low-carbon technologies. There's mundane but vital machinery in the works, like more efficient combustion boilers that produce steam to generate electricity, but with much less emissions attached to it. There's also smarter factories and water turbine technologies, or lithium-ion batteries and ultra-capacitors that Siping and Xiao found in their research of these Chinese representative companies. Things that are already in development that we hope can be used to lower the world's emissions. And according to the authors in China, it's the companies that pollute the most that are working the hardest to develop these solutions, as Xiao just said. And they are encouraged by market forces to do so, not only because of China's internal policies, but large industrial demand for green materials is on the rise. Like the proposal by the EU on the taxation of imports that have a greater carbon intensity than the region allows for certain energy-intensive domestic industries. Since the EU is China's largest trading partner as of 2020, such moves matter. And Xiao and Siping also wrote about the fact that capital. Is starting to get behind the move toward a low-carbon society in China. ESG is on the rise, and it's a signal, maybe a call for active engagement from institutional investors on pushing companies and governments to make these revolutionary changes to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by forcing conventional businesses to make a fundamental low-carbon transition and to incentivize new businesses to seize opportunities offered by technology, or at least that's what Siping and Xiao have written. And that's it for the week. I want to thank you and CL for discussing this week's news with an ESG twist, and I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It makes us more visible on the podcast pages. And subscribe if you want to hear us every week. Thanks again, and talk to you soon.
The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.